You're listening to The Good GP, the podcast for busy GPs. Hello and welcome to The Good GP, the education podcast for busy GPs. Welcome back and today on the podcast my guest is Dr Rajiv Menon. Welcome Raj. Good morning Tim. You're a specialist in pain medicine and anaesthetist. Yep. Tell us a bit about yourself and your interest in pain medicine. Uh, yeah, so I'm a um, specialist with dual fellowships in anaesthesia and pain medicine. I've been working for the last little while as a staff specialist at two hospitals in Perth, in both specialties. I uh, did my undergraduate and postgraduate training in Perth, so I'm a lo- as locally trained as I can be. Um, I developed an interest in pain medicine while I was on rotation dur- during anaesthetic training, and I really enjoyed the fact that pain medicine complements anaesthesia so well, because you get to not only have continuity of your patients for a start, interacting with a multidisciplinary team and you know, interacting with other specialties on a much broader level and having still having some procedural skills. I find that really rewarding. And then there were other areas of, of pain medicine that we often don't see as anaesthetists because anaesthetists would often just handle acute post-operative pain. But you know, we get to deal with chronic pain and cancer pain and other interesting areas of pain. So that was sort of what led me to that, to holding a second fellowship. From, on a personal note, my wife is a local. She was born and brought up in WA. All the family around here, I'm, I'm pretty happy spending all my time in Perth. And well, today's episode is really interesting. It's about coding, which is really topical. It's going to get rescheduled on the 1st of February. I know you're not a GP, but you, you see a lot of our patients. What do you think GPs will see change as coding gets rescheduled? Uh, so I was having a chat to some of my colleagues about this, and I think um, while we may have been involved in a sort of discussion level for some time about this, this, this decision... I'm not sure how much information is readily available to patients out there. So mm-hmm. I would anticipate you're likely to get a significant amount of confusion from patients as to why there's been a change in the first place. Um, I've also noticed, just reading media, that there's a fair bit of debate in the community about the motivations behind the change, and I suspect patients will come to you looking for firm answers. There's certainly sort of polar opinions on it, and it comes back, there's often this argument around effectiveness or, of coding, which gets cited as a part of it. I mean, the two big reasons I may say, well, it's just not very effective sure. for chronic pain, and it's also quite a large source of overdose deaths in Australia. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's talk about effectiveness. I yeah, mean, sure. how effective is codeine as an analgesic? Look, I think um, I think it would be unfair to say that it's not effective at all, at least in a subjective sense, since there, are, there seem to be plenty of people out there who use codeine regularly for pain relief, and they're going to perhaps rightly feel justified that they're being restricted in their access to the drug. Um, but if we want to try and be objective about it, I think it's the kinetics of codeine that, that I find quite interesting as a pain specialist. Um, and it's, the kinetics is really the main reason why most pain specialists, and I would probably say most anaesthetists, don't really favour using it um, mm. in any real capacity. Um, so as you know, codeine has a fairly poor affinity for opioid receptors, uh, and the mu opioid receptors specifically. Um, and if we just delve into some pharmacology for a minute... Yeah, please, just, uh, take us all the way back. Yeah, well, okay. <laughs> um, so uh, somewhere between 5 to 15% of code, ingested codeine will be demethylated into morphine, yep. uh, which is through the CYPD26 pathway. I've written this down because I always get the numbers mixed up. <laughs> um, and so morphine, of all the codeine metabolites, is the only one that has any significant mu receptor activity. Um, and as you and your listeners, I'm sure, are already aware, there's significant genetic polymorphism variation yeah uh, the expression of cypd 2 d6 um, and so there's a degree of unpredictability in the general population about how much efficacy codeine will have purely based on how much morphine the patient is likely to be getting um, 
functionally, as far as as far as we treat codeine, we essentially treat it as an unpredictable morphine prodrug. Yep. We don't really believe much in the drug itself. You know, there's some potentials for antitussive effects and that sort of thing, but as far as analgesia goes, we just consider morphine as a uh, codeine as a morphine prodrug. And you know, if you're going to consider giving the patient codeine, essentially you're considering giving the patient morphine. Mm-hmm. Um, and we would sort of assume there's a one tenth potency as a rough rule of thumb. But uh, as I've just discussed, we can assume this fairly unpredictable. But for most people in the general population, we would probably assume that taking a eight to fifteen milligram dose of codeine is going to give them very little morphine. So, you know, taking a combination preparations, ibuprofen or paracetamol with 8 to 15 milligrams of codeine, how much more are you really gaining apart compared to just taking paracetamol and ibuprofen where you may be getting a very small amount of morphine. However, when people do say that it's effective for them, then we have to consider that perhaps they're getting a little bit more morphine. And now one of our big concerns is the ultra-rapid metabolizers who, as you know, would be getting significant doses of morphine. Mostly we seem to get away with it and it's okay. But it's not uncommon for people to run into, well, certainly it's not uncommon for me to, me to hear about or see people that are running into significant problems. We do get the occasional death from an opioid-naive person taking a panadine fort for the first time, for example. There have been recent changes in guidelines for breastfeeding mothers, as I'm sure you're aware. If, if the mother is a, an ultra-rapid metabolizer, then you can get a significant dose of morphine delivered to the breast milk. And there's been a recent, well, not that recent anymore, but there was a series of deaths in children taking... Uh, codeine preparations for post-tonsil uh, surgery in the United States, uh, which led to a sort of rethinking about how we use codeine. And uh, the TGA and the um, Australian Medicines Handbook have both sort of recommended against using it in children under 12, as well as breastfeeding mothers. And certainly for post-cesarean section analgesia, which was a common prescription, uh, anaesthetists, certainly the hospitals that I work at, have now stopped prescribing codeine and possibly also uh, oxycodone, but that's, again, a separate story. But essentially, I think the efficacy of codeine is unpredictable, potentially dangerous, although usually not, I'll grant you that. Um, but it's, what we're doing is basically giving people varying amounts of small bits of morphine. And from that point of view, we kind of feel, well, if you're considering giving the patient opioid, why not give them an opioid that is predictable and a bit more reliable than giving them a drug like this? And you're operating, I guess, with opioids in a, in a much more regulated way because they're re- regulated by proper scheduling. And that's so correct, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So... Uh, yeah, I mean, that, if we're just talking about efficacy, I think that's sort of probably sort of a fair point. Um, there's a whole raft of other issues which I'm sure you want to delve into, but I think efficacy is, the, is a very important yeah. starting point. Yeah. So really, it's a messy, unpredictable drug, potentially dangerous yeah. in some people. Look, that's how we see it, yeah, yeah. So, you know, a lot of people will be affected. Uh, you know, let's say, let's talk chronic pain. Sure. So, so, so for a chronic pain patient, we say chronic low back pain, mm-hmm. And they've been taking, you know, a lot of uh, relying on over-the-counter codeine. You know, they've yep. just been buying the sure. doll every two days mm-hmm. or whatever. What would you sort of uh, recommend as the options? And so we don't really know how many people are out there doing this, but mm. uh, one possible sort of blowback, which you you know I haven't mentioned before, is that you may find a lot of people coming to you fessing up mm. to using a large amount of over-the-counter codeine, which previously perhaps they hadn't been you hadn't been aware of or you, you're, you, know, you and your colleagues may not have been aware of uh, or us also when I see a patient clinic I don't know how much over the counter coding they're using unless they choose to tell me it's a tricky situation I think uh, I don't think anyone's denying that it's a difficult one if a patient's been potentially or supposedly relatively functional with over the counter coding products but I mean if you want to go back to first principles from a pain specialist practice which I appreciate the practical realities are quite different for GPs if we're assuming that codeine treatment is the same as opioid therapy, 
then we need to consider what the evidence says about opioid therapy for chronic pain and whether or not it should play a major role. And as you know, that the evidence does not point to opioids being the main strategy for, for treating someone with chronic pain. But if we're looking at everyday medicine and practicalities, I think, well, first of all, I will acknowledge that my perspective is skewed since most people, when they come to my clinic, have been on opioids or still on opioids. And I'm dealing with them from a, well, you've already started on opioids, so let's deal with it, rather than having the, the uh, sometimes difficult, sometimes better position of having a, not a clean patient, so to speak. Mm, yeah. um, but it may be worth thinking that if, if giving someone a non-opioid option might be preferable to a small amount of opioid, and you may get equal results or better results um, with non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, antineuropathic adjuvant agents, etc. Um, if you are going down the road of trying opioids, then it might make practical sense to give them a predictable dose of something stronger. One option which I've used to some success in post-operative pain is the uh, paracetamol tramadol combination that's recently been available on the market. There are some potential advantages there. We're, we're assuming a synergistic effect of paracetamol tramadol, so both drugs are present at a lower dose, which might be make it more tolerable um, and have a bit less potential for side effects and might actually widen the population in which you can prescribe the drug. Um, but I would probably consider that as a starting point. I would also perhaps think that um, this might be a chance for a patient to explore non-opioid options, generally speaking. I think that's the great in with yeah. potentially these patients. Mm. Is they come in and you can sort of restart from scratch and say, well, these are all your options. Yeah, yeah. Because I think a lot of them will come in with the expectation that, oh, I'll just get a script for it now. And, you know, in essence, what you're saying is it's actually a great opportunity to take them off potentially a not good drug, which is unpredictable and, and probably not effective. And I think that's... Uh, um, I'm not denying that that's a difficult, potentially difficult task. I, I do that all the time. Um, but uh, if all else fails, you can still prescribe them coding, but it would be nice for... I would like to think that perhaps there's a, there are some patients out there who would go, well, actually, I didn't know that this wasn't such a great drug. Mm. I'm happy to try something else. And, and over-the-counter sometimes gives a false sense of security to patients, I suppose, and it might be good for them to be re-educated. So the, the other group that we see, and I, I know a lot of GPs have mentioned this group to me, particularly mm. female GPs, is people who get... Um, really severe primary dysmenorrhea and they'll, you know, sure. they'll get sort of real bad spikes yeah, in pain and they yeah. find it's particularly effective for acute pain. So mm-hmm. what, what would you be advising there? Yeah, I think it's, that's a really good point. Um, and we'd also have to consider people who can't tolerate non-steroidals for mm-hmm. various reasons. We're not getting rid of the drug altogether. And I think, you know, if these patients are appropriate, then I certainly can see a case for some of them being prescribed codeine products. I, I certainly don't think it's got no role in the community, but... Uh, if we know that they've taken it before and it's a, the effect is predictable, then and it's an if if it's infrequent acute pain, then it would still potentially be quite practicable for GPs to prescribe a small amount of twenty yeah. tablets and let the patient keep that prescription until they feel they need it. That doesn't, in my mind, that doesn't seem to be too much of an inconvenience for for GPs or patients. Mm. But it might just take a little bit more, a little bit more sort of thinking ahead rather than the patient just knowing they yeah. can go to the shop and buy some stuff next time they come and see their GP they might have to think oh I better get a script for some coding and panning for it just in case so taking him uh, through the planning process around, would be a know. good yeah would, would maybe also get if we can get a bit of understanding as to how they're using the drug we might be able to counsel them as to how to use it better yep and of course if it's more than just an infrequent acute problem then maybe we need to be treating it as a chronic problem in which case it's a different approach altogether so 
Uh, I would uh, optimistically like to think it's opening a door for optimizing people's use of the medication. Yep. But I am fully willing to admit that it's not going to be a convenient or well, and I guess process. The, the problem with those things is they come on suddenly and, you know, people... Of course, yeah, you know, yeah. And, you know, you might not get it for a year and then, you know, your prescription's sure, yeah, done. Sure, yeah, run out, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think there, there are these conversations to be had and there's going to be these sort of, uh, I guess, stress points in the system, aren't there? Yeah, I mean, people... I think there's a lot of fear that people are going to be left high and dry and I don't think that's anyone's intention mm. with, with the restriction of, the, of, of prescription. But I, we do acknowledge, I think, as a specialty, that it will make things a little bit more difficult for people until we figure out how to do this properly. I mean, Australia is actually one of only a few countries where codeine was available over the counter. Mm. Most places in the world don't allow it to be purchased freely. So, you know, I don't think we're... I think we're drifting towards the normal, not the abnormal. So, so it's not like it's been, not been done before. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and we've seen this kind of regulation with other medications, mm-hmm. you know, pseudoephedrines and, yeah, and so forth yeah, as well. Yeah. So, last question, mm-hmm. do you see any problem with patients turning to other OTCs like ibuprofen and, you know, are we going to see a rise in gastric ulcers again? And well, <laughs> um, I mean, codeine dependency is a real problem. Mm-hmm. Uh, our colleagues at Next Step have frequently spoken about the fact that codeine dependence or abuse or inappropriate use is, is fairly common. Um, and I think... Uh, in, 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 our, in my mind, certainly, and I think I can speak for most of my colleagues, it's likely that the complications of the overuse of ibuprofen and paracetamol are more related to the fact that people are dependent on codeine rather than overusing those drugs for any perceived effect that they might have in themselves. And so I think generally I would assume that people aren't going to be getting much reward out of taking super therapeutic doses of uh, paracetamol and ibuprofen. Yeah. Um, maybe, again, maybe I'm just uh, an idealist, but I think if people are taking com- combination preparations for what I think they're taking them for, then I, I'm not sure that this is going to be a, a huge concern. Um, there are other issues that are associated with... So, I mean, one of the really common things that, that I see is coding being used for headaches, which leads to a secondary medication overuse problem. Mm-hmm. But you can get medication overuse headaches from paracetamol and ibuprofen. So that, those sorts of problems are not going to disappear just because people can no longer freely take coding when they want to. I think that's uh, perhaps that's the problem that we've mm. seen. It there's not a lot of great patient education happening around a lot of these changes. Yeah, I think that's a fair comment. Yeah, um, yeah. And, you know, big changes that will affect the public at mm. large. I mean, most people would probably have taken codeine in the last year or two. Yeah. I re- I'd reckon. I'd also say it's a fair statement. Yeah. Um, and just the the awareness of well, what's what's an effective use of a, mm-hmm. of an analgesic, and you know, how do you avoid those sort of common problems? So it is an opportunity in that regard, but it'd be better to have more public education yeah, rather I would than agree. just come to your doctor and your doctor will sort it out. There, there is information out there, but it's not easy to necessarily find. Um, I think the TGA has got some stuff on their website, which, if you can find it, is actually you know fairly comprehensive and gives patients a lot to sort of work through. But uh, they've got to find it first, mm, which yeah. is which is you know not easy. I, I'm. I think I'm trying to be mindful of the fact that I see, again, a skewed population and I see so many people who've ended up in you know, real strife because of the abuse of coding and I have to keep reminding myself that that isn't necessarily reflective of the general population, which is what you guys would be exposed to much more than I would. 
Well, so how do you cover both? Because we know, you know, that you, like you said, there's a great population, probably a population benefit of, of analgesia mm. for appropriate users. But yeah, there's also you know, hundreds of codeine deaths. Yes. You know, yes. Which, yeah. it's just not really acceptable. Basically. No, it is. And it is a problem. And it's a burden to the community. And it's, it's tragic. I mean, you know, people are dying from drugs, which we really know are not that great. And yet they're being allowed, not allowed is a bad word, but they're buying them in large amounts and taking them with the intention, you know, usually to treat pain, I would probably argue. I think the balance is a tricky one and it's easy to see it in black and white, I think. And, uh, mm. I mean, you can break anything down to an all or nothing argument and uh, both sides will will think they've won. Mm. But, uh, I mean, all we can do is, I think, try. And I, I agree with you that education is probably the most important thing. I think generally speaking, you know, the, the, the chemical... The response, of, response to pain of immediately reaching for analgesia is probably at the heart of a lot of this. And I think if people could be reassured or educated or shown another way, that might actually do a lot for the general population for health generally. Yeah. More, more so than just specifically talking about why codeine is crappy. It might be worth talking about, well, why painkillers are not necessarily the answer to, you know, to all your problems. Yeah. Um, but, you know, as you mentioned, I think the people that I will that I will sort of sympathise with most are the ones who are using it entirely appropriately, infrequently, and ed- in an educated fashion. Uh, and for those guys, life is going to get a little bit more inconvenient. Yeah. Um, I, I, I sympathise. Mm. Raj, thanks so much. It's been a great episode. My and pleasure. Really helpful uh, information on coding. Mm-hmm.